0: regulations are complicated. They're hard to deal with. It's hard to give a predictable way forward. But if you have a carbon tax that you know what the price it's going to be and how it's going to raise over time, that gives businesses a predictable world to live in. So I think that you're seeing a big push on the broad sense, but then you also see the messaging from so many companies that trying to be cleaner, greener, and that, you know, some of it is probably greenwashing, but I think most of it is authentic. Welcome
1: back to another episode of This Green Planet. I'm your host, Penny Bowder, a seven-figure business leader, environmental scientist, serial entrepreneur, author, and business coach. Here, I am sharing support and guidance to women who are starting and running a sustainable or STEM-related business. This podcast is bound to inspire you to launch your business or scale for growth. Let's dive into today's episode. Welcome back to This Green Planet. Today, we're going to be talking about climate change. I have a special guest today on the show, and I'm so excited to be able to have a conversation with Mark Reynolds. Mark is the executive director of Citizens Climate Lobby. He's a globally recognized expert on helping disparate interests find common ground on things like energy, public policy, and the environment. Mark oversees a training curriculum that reaches tens of thousands of supporters every year. And it's interesting to note that when I was an undergrad in Michigan, I was actually part of the Citizens Climate Lobby. So it's sort of a cool full circle thing to have Mark on the show today. Mark has been a frequent guest on TV and radio shows, and he's written tons of different op eds on climate solutions for more than 85 print journals. He's truly an expert on climate change. Mark, uh, we're so uh, happy to have you on the show today. I would love to have you just kind of start off our talk today with having you tell us a little bit about the Citizens Climate Lobby.
0: Yeah, I think the easiest way to do that is is to just tell you how we were founded. So we were founded by a gentleman by the name of Marshall Saunders. He had spent 20 years setting up microcredit loans where you lend money to the poorest of the poor people in the world. And then they used that to start a business and lift their family up out of poverty. Mm -hmm. So he'd been responsible for over a million microcredit loans. And then he saw an inconvenient truth and came to the stark realization that the most vulnerable people in the world are the ones that are hit first by things like climate change. And that probably the 20 years of work he'd been doing was going to be undone by climate change. So the whole time he'd been working on microcredit, he'd been doing it in partnership with an organization called Results. And what results proved was, is that if you organize people by congressional district, so that your member of Congress basically had to see you, if you gave people a strong structure of support, so if they did something last month, they would do something this month also, there would be a sustained effort. You could actually get Congress to do interesting things. So 35 years ago, results started asking Congress to increase their appropriation for extreme poverty. It's gone from a few Million dollars to a half a billion. So it's dramatically increased. So what Marshall said is what the climate needs is a grassroots movement that's not based in DC, that's not based on people donating money, but is based on constituents working with their member of Congress, essentially democracy working the way that it should. So in 2007, he founded Citizens Climate Lobby. I came in 2009. There were six chapters and 24 volunteers there's no over 500 chapters in the US there's over 100 chapters in 60 other countries around the world uh, we have about 1600 meetings with congressional offices every year we publish a lot of traditional and media mm-hmm. and we've been working on one thing you know the IPCC report and almost every economist in the world will tell you the single most important factor in turning climate change around is a price and so that's what we've been working on is it's just a steady transparent price on carbon mm-hmm. with all the money sent back to American households. The reason we think you should send all the money back to American households is we believe that you need votes from both sides of the aisle. If you're not picking winners and losers, you're more likely to pick up conservative support. And if you do increase the cost of CO2 and other greenhouse gases, American household costs will go up. And so what we want to make sure is, is that costs offset by the monthly check people get.
1: And now you're the director of mm-hmm. Assistance Climate Lobby. Can you walk us through sort of a day in the life of your job, but also you have tens of thousands of volunteers. Also, maybe walk us through a day in the life of of these volunteers. How are they making a difference?
0: Yeah. So first of all, my role has changed dramatically over the last 13 years. Initially, it was me (laughs) and our founder. We've doubled or tripled the size every year for the, for a decade. And so I used to go out and brag to everybody, hey, look, we're twice as big as we were last year. And then it was like, yeah, but I'm getting 300 emails a day. So we realized we needed to expand the staff. So first there was five and there was six. Now there's 65 staff members. So most of my day is way different than it used to be. It used to be all interactions with the volunteers, which I still try to do as much as I can. But with an organization that grows, you're spending more time on things like are all our compliance needs met, you know, right. like you know, yeah. weekly budget meeting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I do try to keep my pulse out there on the ground as much as possible because the heart of our organization really is the volunteers. So our volunteers range everything from retired people who do this as a second full-time job to a lot of young people. Um, My 16-year-old niece and 14-year-old nephew recently joined. We have a lot of young people who coming, and I love that there's a weekly intro call that my 16-year-old niece attended, and they said to her, how did you hear about Citizens Climate Lobby? And she goes, I think my uncle works there. So, the volunteers are really what's happening. So, they're the ones scheduling meetings with members of Congress, which used to be live or virtual right now. And actually, there's been some upside to virtual meetings. So, you know, we used to get 10 people in a Senate offices. We've had 200 people attend meetings with senators now. Mm -hmm. We've been able to get, yeah, local priests to join, local business people, people that wouldn't ordinarily come to DC. A local volunteer, you know, they're setting up their next meeting with members of Congress. They're setting opportunities to do outreach. They'll start doing a lot of tabling now, now that they can get out in the public. They're managing responses to the newspaper. We publish about 3,500 letters to the editor and are about 600 op-eds every year. Mm-hmm. The volunteers are very much out there making it happen. And what I'm doing and the rest of the staff is trying to create as easy a condition for them to work in as possible. Mm-hmm.
1: I'm really interested in the younger volunteers that you're attracting to the organization. I also love that you work with a lot of retired folks as well. My dad has worked with you guys before. He's a volunteer park ranger, and then he does climate change stuff sort of on the side as well. Many of the listeners to the show are parents, and so... I'm wondering, in your opinion, what are just some things that parents should do to inspire their kids to become environmental leaders, aside from working with Citizens Climate Lobby? Because as we know, and this is always part of the dialogue, is how do we foster environmental leadership in children? This is who is going to be taking care of the planet, you know, in 10 years, 20 years.
0: You know, we do a lot of work to have people engage with their member of Congress, and it's transformative for everybody, because most people think, oh, that's that thing way over there, and I can't get access to it. And then you find out you can. Well, there's something that completely changes any congressional meeting, and that's when a young person is there. So if young people would actually call their member of Congress, tell them how old they are, see if they can find a way to attend a meeting if they're in district or the ones that are done by Zoom, for some reason... The members of Congress and their staff completely change in the presence of a young person. I don't know exactly why that is, but it is consistent. They'll tell you the same thing. The most important thing is, is for people to get engaged to do something to be working on something. And, you know, there's a lot of little things that help, but people eat and don't eat matters and how people use their energy matters. But the single biggest thing this planet needs is a consistent, transparent price throughout the world. Mm -hmm. And so if young voices are part of that, it makes a really, really big difference.
1: I've seen that firsthand. I I mentioned to you earlier in the show before I started recording that I at one point lived in Alaska. And one thing I did up there was work with a group called Alaska Youth for Environmental Action. I experienced a similar situation. They were constantly lobbying their representatives. And I saw that sort of interaction and that exchange. And I think maybe it has something to do with just the innocence. And I think that we all all over the world respond to that, and maybe that's why why representatives sort of light up when there's youth in the room. You know, business owners, and I spend a lot of time working with and supporting business owners just starting a business up until you know people running their own company. And I think that there has been a change kind of in the dialogue that like business owners are looking to reduce their carbon footprint. They're looking to become more green because I think people are starting to realize that it's good for business. So that's an interesting thing, and so. As far as you know, what you guys are doing, how do we share that information with business owners, getting them to think about, okay, it's good for business to reduce their carbon footprint. It's good for business to be more aware of climate change. And I think this directly relates to what Citizens Climate Lobby is doing right now.
0: Yeah, definitely. So the bill we're supporting right now is called the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act. We have gotten thousands of businesses to sign endorsements for a lot of the reasons that you just said. And it's so important that we hear from the business community. You know, that's one of the things members of Congress regularly ask us, is what do the job creators in my district say? Getting those endorsements are really, really important. And I think that there is a major change of people understanding going clean, being sustainable is so so important, really even happening at really high levels. Mm. So the US Chamber of Commerce has said that they support a market-based mechanism to deal with global warming. The American Petroleum Institute did. You know. Mm-hmm. So, and then the Business Roundtable, which is the CEOs of the largest companies in the country, have also said that they want a market-based mechanism to deal with climate change. Now, from the chamber's standpoint, from the Business Roundtable, that's also because they would prefer a market mechanism to regulations. Regulations are complicated. They're hard to deal with. It's hard to give a predictable way forward. But if you have a carbon tax that you know what the price it's going to be and how it's going to raise over time, that gives businesses a predictable world to live in. So I think that you're seeing a big push on the broad sense, but then you also see the messaging from so many companies that trying to be cleaner, greener, and that, you know, some of it is probably greenwashing, but I think most of it is authentic.
1: Can you talk a little bit about how a carbon tax would work for maybe a small business like mine up until like a larger corporation?
0: The way we propose you do a carbon tax is you do it at the source. So that's at the oil well, at the coal mine, and that you actually make an adjustment at the border. So you're incentivizing other countries Mm -hmm. to put the same kind of price in place. So what economists say is if you want less of something and you want less of it quickly, make it more expensive. Just like, you know, we basically priced cigarette smoking out of existence. By 2050, there's going to be almost nobody smoking Mm -hmm. in our country because young people can't buy cigarettes anymore. Mm -hmm. So we say the same thing. Put a steadily rising price which sends a signal to industry that this transition we're already making to clean energy is going to happen faster. Mm -hmm. So then we take all that money and send it back to American households. So how would it affect your business? Probably not much. I mean, sure, your energy costs are going to go up some, but the people who do best under the proposal we're pushing for are the people at the lower ends of the economic spectrum. And that's because most of people's carbon footprint is in what they buy, not their energy use people at the lower ends of the economic spectrum will actually come out with more money in their pocket because they don't buy so much stuff and people at the higher ends, it's just not going to hurt them. It's not enough to hurt them. The nice thing about this is sure. Some of your costs will go up, but you're going to be getting a monthly check. That's going to offset that. And hopefully what that does is incentivize you to, you know, maybe you want to get a hybrid car or electric car because then your monthly check actually stretches a little bit further we're really working on incentives for individuals and businesses mm-hmm. where now it's in your economic interest to be carbon virtuous
1: can you sort of look into the future <laughs> give us sort of like a meaningful like timeline like so you're doing you guys are doing all this work on the ground you're lobbying representatives when is this going to hit the floor love to kind of see what you think
0: 3 years ago we got the first version of what we've been arguing for introduced it was the first bipartisan carbon pricing bill in a decade so you actually had republicans and democrats. This version has democrats only. We're at a really interesting moment with Congress, right? Looks like an infrastructure package is going to happen, but then there's going to be a reconciliation process. And what's going to happen in that process? It's possible that a carbon price could be inserted as part of that. We've always been under the scenario it has to happen right now. Mm. But we've been in, under that scenario <laughs> for 13 years yeah. because we take I the know. scientists seriously. We do. You know, if they say we're running out of time, that's good enough for me. I don't need to check my own experience. <laughs> you have know, the scientists yeah. say you've got a limited amount of time. So we've we've always functioned like it had to happen yesterday. I do think that there is an opportunity at this moment. And we'll we'll either see that, that happening or not happening in the next couple of months.
1: That's so exciting. What can you share with our listeners? Like, What can we do right now? Um, what's the sort of call out to our listeners?
0: They could call their member of Congress and ask them to go big on climate that don't waver at this moment with all the other things that are being looked at in the infrastructure and the reconciliation process is just ask them to go big on climate. Do not waver from that piece of it.
1: And that's a simple message, I think, that so, that I think it works, short and sweet. Switching gears just a tiny bit, I'd love to hear a little bit just sort of about your journey. You always know that you wanted to be an environmentalist, How did you get from a youth riding your bike around to this climate leader? Like you're really doing some amazing things in the world.
0: Yeah. So there's no logical path from here to there. I had spent most of my professional career working in the quote productivity effectiveness space. The last thing I was doing before I came to Citizens Climate Lobby was working for an organization called Mission Control in my biggest clients were Boeing and NASA. And what I was trying to do was make their top line engineers and scientists more efficient, more effective, getting better use of their time. Marshall Saunders had been a good friend of mine for a long time. Mm -hmm. And he said, I've started this new thing and I want you to run it. I tried to understand what he was saying and I couldn't wrap my hand around it. Then one day we were having breakfast and I'm like, okay, I get it, Marshall. You want to work on Congress and global warming at the same time. So you don't want to pick one of the most screwed up things in the world. You want both of them at the same time. He's like, (laughs) yeah, yeah, this is going to be great. (laughs) It sounded like a terrible idea to me. I'd seen what Marshall had done on the thing. So I asked Mission Control for a six-month leave of absence, and there was kind of an epiphany moment. Hill, this was in 2009. The House was debating Waxman-Markey, which to us looked like the 1,400-page overly complicated bill. We were saying, that's too complicated. You want something simpler. Mm -hmm. There was a Republican congressman named Bob Inglis in South Carolina who would offered a straightforward carbon tax offset with a payroll tax reduction. Mm -hmm. And we're saying this is much simpler. The first day we were terrible. Basically, we're going to Republican offices and say, wouldn't you love a new tax? (laughs) (laughs) And we were going to Democratic offices and we were saying, you know, this idea you're working on that you're for is really dumb. We have a better one. Now, who do you know that loves being told that they're stupid? Mm -hmm. And so our meetings were terrible. The worst one was we were finishing up a meeting with Senator Carrie Staffer and halfway through the meeting she closed her notebook. Anybody who's paying attention should realize this person's done with us. She's continuing to be gracious, she's being great. So we just talk louder and faster. <laughs> so, you know, I was really uncomfortable that night. We couldn't do that any worse than we did. And I thought, well, why the things that I'm teaching business how to work with people, why aren't we trying that? The next day I said, can we just try something different? Because we're terrible. How about if we just try and find out what we have in common with the people we're meeting Mm -hmm. with and see if something comes from that? Every meeting that day was electric. And that kind of scared me because I'm like, oh, this might work. (laughs) Because I really did. I mean, I had three kids in college. I just wanted to do a short thing with this and then get back to, you know, making the kind of money I needed to make to get three kids through college. But then I had one of those, holy cow, if this could work and I walk away from it, you know, Mm -hmm. how do you tell your kids? We could have done something of a work, but it was too hard. Mm -hmm. So I had one of those, oh my God, this is gonna be my life's work. I don't Mm -hmm. have a choice. Mm -hmm. You know, the the opportunity is, is choosing me. So it was really that moment that transformed me. I mean, really, there was no, there's nothing that predictably gets me here.
1: There's so many important themes in that story, right? Common ground, which I feel like is transferable to almost every conflict kind of situation in the world. Also, this idea that the opportunity picked you which is really beautiful, I think. So thank you for sharing that. And I feel like when we put ourselves in that situation and we're reaching out to people from that place of common ground, that's when the real work starts. And and I think that that has shown itself in Citizens Climate Lobby. But our, our youth need to hear that too, I think. And you know, how do we communicate with people? How do we reach that place of common ground? Because it really is available all the time.
0: Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons this organization has been appealing to young people and everybody. We're not angry. We're not shaking our fist at anybody. We only have one rule, which is if you meet with an elected official, the starting point of that meeting is admiration, respect, and gratitude for their public service. I think we're trying to give people permission to treat people the way they wanted to anyway, but they thought the only way you can make a difference is to yell people down. We've talked a
1: little bit about science. Okay, so there's growing coverage surrounding climate change and it's impending danger. And I feel like it's been said that younger generations are becoming more aware of the relevance of STEM subjects, relevance they hold in everyday life. And I feel like there's a relationship here that maybe people just sort of the relationship. How do we, how do we connect those two subjects, STEM learning, STEM education and climate change? And how can we do it in a way that helps us address and raise awareness around the climate change problem?
0: That's a really good question <laughs> that I don't have any idea the answer of, <laughs> you know, but there's the other kind of side of it, which is, you know, if all that we needed was information, we would have solved this problem a long time ago, mm-hmm. but our countries had all the information on diet and exercise forever, mm-hmm. And look what we look like. Mm-hmm. The information isn't what did it. So there's gotta, mm-hmm. we have to attend to something else. Also, okay. the information is important, but we need to attend to what moves people. You know, in 2011, there's a social scientist who's at Berkeley who's at Stanford named him, Rob Willers. Mm-hmm. And he wrote a paper called Apocalypse Soon, Dire Messages Are Counterproductive on Global Warming. And what his study showed is, is that if all you give people is the gloomy future we're going towards, it actually stops most people. But that if what you do is lead with solutions, people say to themselves, wow, I finally met somebody who understands this problem. I think we need to have the information. I think young people's education is a crucial part of it. So the more and more of them are working from the scientific consensus, but then I think we also need to attend to what works with people. I think what you were just emphasizing also is we believe like you were just affirming that starting with what you have in common with other people Mm -hmm. is a crucial piece Mm -hmm. and trying to see the world from their perspective. My own view is we have more common with people that we disagree with than we don't have in common. Gosh, I had a long talk with Barry Goldwater's son. Mm-hmm. So his his son said, yeah, my dad used to take me on hikes and he used to walk me up to trees and he'd say, son, this tree has more character than most of the people you're going to meet in your life. <laughs> and I think <laughs> that, you know, we can always find something like that with people, right? right? Where we have this in common and then how can we build from there?
1: Yes. And finding that common ground before you do anything else. And your work with Citizens Climate Lobby, you're training people to do just that. So it's almost like a character development aspect of your program. I think that 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 is just amazing. And it's obviously working. Once you do that, I'm hearing that you're leading the solution. We already have this figured out. We have this bill and we need to. And the solution here is we have it figured out. And all you simply need to do is reach out to Congress, tell them at this point to go big on climate.
0: Yeah, so you know you've seen the Six Americas report from the Mm -hmm. Yale 360 project, Mm -hmm. and it says 30 percent of Americans are alarmed. So that means there's millions and millions of people alarmed. They just don't know what to do. Right. They just need to know something to do.
1: When we're alarmed, we kind of get paralyzed, and if we can't figure out a solution, then we might just shove it and go move on to something else.
0: <laughs> That's such a good point. One of the catchphrases that gets thrown around this organization all the time is action is the antidote to fear everything. everything. Right. <laughs> yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Is there
1: a website? Is there an easy way for people to get that information to reach out to Congress?
0: Yeah, thank you. CitizensClimateLobby.org. Mm-hmm. CitizensClimateLobby.org. Yeah, thank okay. you for that. This was amazing. Thank you so much
1: thank you so much for listening to this episode of this green planet to get further details about the topics discussed in this episode please go to thisgreenplanetpodcast.com to review all show notes and links if you love this episode we would love it if you subscribed and left us a rating and review on apple Podcasts or wherever you listen this helps more people just like you find our podcast I look forward to having you join me next episode. Until then, stay safe and let's make this panic.